Well, good morning. It's good to be with you, brothers and sisters, um, as we seek to uh, open the Word of God together. I want to read with you before we do this from Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24, the very last chapter of the book of Joshua. We're going to be speaking today upon the uh, theme, kind of a combined theme, as we've been looking at worship, what it is, um, the kind of people that can worship the Lord, how we should worship the Lord. Uh, This week we want to talk about individual worship and family worship before the rest of the, of the uh, series will focus uh, predominantly upon public worship, what we do when we're together as a church. But today we want to focus upon individual worship and family worship. And I want to begin by reading to you and with you from Joshua chapter 24. It says this in verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt." And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. and He sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. 
And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. Amen. Thus the reading of God's word. Will you pray with me as we ask God's blessing upon this? Our heavenly father, we do pray that as we study your scriptures, as we think about these things, that you would bless us and teach us and help us to understand what you have to say to us in your word for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this chapter is very well known, and in particular, the verses 14 and 15, we might find on um, some uh, doormats. Actually, I think uh, the verse there, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think we might even have at our house, someone gave us a, a, a doormat as you come into the door, into the house uh, with this written on it. It's a very well-known chapter, and in particular, it helpfully, I think, summarizes what we're talking about when we talk about the fact that as believers, we are to serve the Lord, not simply when we come to church, come together with the people of God, but we are to serve him individually in our private lives. We are to worship him individually, and we are also to worship him as a family, with our individual families as well, and that's where we're drawing from. But as for me, and then my house, we will serve the Lord. The occasion of this chapter is interesting. It's at the very tail end of Joshua's life. Joshua is an old man. Joshua, you may know, was the assistant to Moses. He was Moses' right-hand man. He saw many things with Moses. He was there with Moses um, throughout the hard times and, and the good times. And he's also the one whom God tasked with bringing the people of God across the Jordan River into the promised land. And Joshua has served the Lord faithfully for many years. He's an old man now. He's brought them into the land and he's about ready to uh, retire, so to speak, and go to his, uh, the land that the Lord's given him to live out his last days in peace. But he has one last thing that he wants to tell Israel, to tell their leaders and to uh, commit to them. And that's what we read here in chapter 24. We read in verse one there that he gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. He brings them together to Shechem. Now, if you know the Bible, if you were to look up Shechem in your um, online or somewhere in your index in your Bible, you would see that Shechem is an important city in the scriptures. It's actually the city that Abraham comes to in Genesis chapter 12, verses six and seven. When he comes into the promised land, we're told that he came to Shechem. 
And this was the place that Abraham, long ago, had built an altar, and the Lord appeared to him and said, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. Jacob had lived near Shechem. There had been some infamous events whenever his two of his sons, Levi and Simeon, went in, you might remember, in Genesis chapter 34, and slaughtered the whole city um, because of what they had done to their sister Dinah. And Jacob also had been here whenever he called his family uh, back to the Lord, and it had been here at Shechem that, the, that Jacob had buried the idols of his, of his family whenever they were going to Bethel. Israel also had gathered here to Shechem in Joshua chapter 8. It's interesting, Shechem lies in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that God had told them, Israel, that whenever they came into the promised land, they were to go to these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. One half was to stand here and one half was to stand there. And the covenant, the word of God was to be read with all the blessings and all of the curses. And Shechem lies in the valley between these two mountains. And so this had been the place where God's covenant word had been read to Shechem, to Israel already. And later on, as you see here at the tail end of Joshua chapter 24, Shechem was also where Joseph was to be buried. And it's in such an important site, Shechem, where their forefather Abraham had come so long ago where so many important things had happened that Joshua brings the people together one more time. And he calls together all the leaders, the judges, everybody who has responsibilities to care for Israel. And he commits to them one last charge to remind them one last time of who the Lord is, what he has done, and their responsibilities towards him. So I want to break down this passage into basically four sections, four basic uh, points uh, today. And I'm revolving it around that one phrase that Joshua says in verse 15, we will serve the Lord. And he's calling Israel to serve the Lord. First of all, we will serve the Lord because of his grace. Second of all, we will serve the Lord and him alone. Third of all, we will serve the Lord as individuals and households. And fourthly, we will serve the Lord, whatever difficulties come our way. First of all, he tells them, we will serve the Lord because of his grace. Joshua opens up and all these men have presented themselves before God. The image here is of someone who would present themselves before a king for the service of the king, right? You present yourself. This is a very official setting in which this is taking place. And Joshua speaks to them and he's speaking as a prophet of the Lord because he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And he tells them this, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. First of all, he reminds them in verse two of their origins and says, in the past, your fathers, Abraham in particular, that he served other gods. Long ago in the city of Ur. If you don't know this, Ur, the city that Abra, Abram, who became Abraham, was from, is in modern day Iraq. Um, it was a major city back then, a metropolis, an important place. And Abraham, back then, was an idolater. It's hard for us to think about that, but Abram and Sarai, Sarah, um, his family, they worshiped other gods at one time. We know this from history that the main god of the city of Ur 
was the god Ninar, who was the moon god. And most likely Abraham would have worshipped this god. This was the god of the city. In fact, it's quite interesting. This moon god was believed to have powers of regeneration. You think about the moon, right? It goes through its phases every month, right? It, it, it diminishes and comes back. And it was thought the moon god had powers of regeneration, of creative powers. You could imagine how that would be attractive to an old man and his wife who had never been able to have children. And here, worshiping the moon god in, in Ur, it's interesting. The god was believed to have owned all of the land they lived in. He received tithes and rent. There was this giant pyramid building structure, a ziggurat that was there. But another thing that is key is that this moon god was mostly worshiped in the home. Most of the worship was carried out by the father as a priest, in a sense, in the home, maintaining altars, conducting worship, offering sacrifices. In fact, it's fascinating, the whole city of Ur itself was intentionally aligned with the moon. And to top it off, from, from what I've read, the names that Terah, Abraham's father, gives to him and Sarai and such and the children, their names are even related to the pagan religion. No wonder that God changes their names from Abram to Abraham and from Sarai to Sarah. In other words, Abraham's whole life revolved around in his home, in his, uh, with his money, even down to his name, the city, everything revolved around worshiping the moon god. But then God, in his grace, in verse 3, appeared to Abraham. The God of glory, as Stephen put it in Acts chapter 7, appeared to Abraham and he took Abraham. Abraham was not looking for God. Abraham was quite happy bowing down and worshiping the moon God until the God of glory who made the moon and the stars called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and said, come with me to a land that I will show you. And God took Abraham, led him through all the land of Canaan. He builds this altar at Shechem, not to the moon God, but to the Lord. He promises him, the moon God had not been able to give you many offspring, but I will give you offspring more than the stars of heaven. And to Abraham, God gave Isaac, and to Isaac, God gave Jacob, and he gave to Esau the land of Seir, but Jacob's offspring went down to Egypt. So we've got the origins of Israel and the fact that the Lord showed his great grace in saving Abraham from his sins, forgiving him of his sins, and bringing him to himself, giving him promises of eternal life, and then eventually redeeming them out of Egypt, beginning in verse uh, 5. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. We read later on, at least it seems that in Egypt, even some of the Israelites worshiped other gods. And you think about the work schedule of the uh, slaves of Israel in Egypt, their calendar schedule would have been based off of what the Egyptian idols and their gods had wanted you to do. Um, their whole life was, was uh, ruled and governed by the idols of Egypt. And so here the Lord sends Moses and Aaron plagues Egypt and redeems his people from their sins and from slavery to Pharaoh. 
Joshua here is going over all that the Lord had done for them in Egypt. Um, he, when the Egyptians pursued them, the Lord covered the Egyptians uh, with the sea. And notice, by the way, how often the Lord in this section says, this is what I did, this is what I did. Notice, by the way, Abraham was not seeking the Lord. The Lord came and took Abraham. The Israelites were not able to free themselves from Egypt. The Lord came and delivered them from Egypt. And then, as we see next, whenever they went into the promised land, it wasn't because the Israelites were so strong that they took over the promised land. It was because the Lord delivered their enemies into their hands. And we see that in verses 8 through 13. The Lord says there, Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. He goes through the story of Balaam and Balak. You remember the story where uh, Balaam, uh, the Lord speaks to him through a donkey and Balaam had been hired by Balak to curse the people of Israel, but the Lord takes this and actually uses Balaam to bless the people of Israel, his people. And so the Lord consistently delivers them out of the hands of their enemies, to where eventually he says in verse 13, or right there at the beginning of verse, at the end of verse 12 too, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Right away, Israel is reminded, and Joshua is calling them to this. And why does God, why does he rehearse all this history? To remind them of this. We serve the Lord first and foremost because of his kindness to us. Because of his grace to us. It reminds me of uh, Titus chapter 3. For us, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We serve the Lord because of his grace. And it's so important that we get this right away at the very beginning. The people of Israel were not to serve the Lord in order to hope to get God's grace. It was because of God's kindness and favor to them that they were then to serve the Lord. Some of us still live our Christian lives with this kind of thinking. If I do this, then God will love me. If I confess my sins enough, then I can move God to be compassionate to me and forgive me. If I do this, then God will be more pleased with me. But actually the language of the Bible, the language of the gospel is this, because God has done this for you, therefore you respond in this way. We serve the Lord, we love him and we serve him, not because we first loved him, but because he first loved us. We serve him because of his grace. But secondly, we are called now in response to this, in response to all that God did, Joshua tells them this, that we will serve the Lord and him alone. We serve him, we serve the Lord because of his grace, but we will serve the Lord and we will serve him alone. 
Joshua says this and gets down to it. And these are the implications of all the history that he's just told us in verse 14. Now, therefore, and the therefore obviously is telling us, in light of what I've just said in verses 1 through 13, in light of all that God's done for us, in light of all of his kindness and his grace and the power that he's shown to us, in light of all of who he is and what he's done and what he's made us, now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Fear the Lord. Now, we don't often talk about fearing the Lord these days, do we? Um, Oftentimes, the Lord is pictured very casually. And if we do that, as I've heard it said um, recently, too, that you know, part of the reason we are so afraid of everything else in this world is because we're not afraid of the Lord. You see, when you're afraid of the Lord, when you fear him, you're not afraid of everything else. God told his people, isn't it funny, by the way, he says this often, whenever you go into the land and you see those giants, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of your enemies. Don't be afraid of the Egyptians. Fear not, stand firm, stand fast. But he does say, fear the Lord. You see, friends, you and I are so scared of everything in this world because we don't have a holy dread and trusting fear of him. If we feared the Lord more than anything else in this world, we would fear nothing in this world. Fear the Lord, revere him. In fact, fear him so much that you will trust everything into his good and powerful hands. Fear him. But also he says, serve him. The word serve, I mean, has the idea of of devotion. I mean, it's the idea of work. It, It involves energy, serving the Lord. It makes us think about Genesis chapter 17, verse one, when God appears to Abraham our father in the faith, and it's the same call to you and me. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. He says, I want you to fear the Lord, serve him and him alone in sincerity and faithfulness. The idea here is with your whole heart, not hypocritically, not partially, not 75%, 100%. All the bits and pieces of your heart are your goal is to align all of that into the service of the Lord, blameless, wholeness, completeness, in sincerity and faithfulness and loyalty to this Lord because of what he's done for us. Fear the Lord and serve him. We read in Ephesians chapter six, verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We are to love the Lord Jesus and to love our Father in heaven and to love the Holy Spirit with love incorruptible. That should be our goal, to trust him, to serve him, to fear him. But he also says this, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him, put away the gods that your fathers served. Now this is very interesting, by the way, because if you were to study this this book of Joshua, and you could do that this afternoon, you'll notice it's not been too long before in chapter 22, that the problem of idols already got brought up. What happened was there were these Eastern tribes, remember they lived on the other side of the Jordan and they had made this monument. 
And the tribes, some of the people thought they were making an idol or some worshiping some other God when actually that wasn't their intention. But the point is, Israel had gathered together to oppose this public, open manifestation of working, worshiping another God. There were these people, and they were very concerned about it. So I don't think his primary thing here is put away the gods in a public sense, because that seems to have already been taken care of. But what could be happening is what was in their hearts and in their homes. We know in Genesis, right, that even Jacob and his family, they had household gods. They had snuck in and taken from Mesopotamia. And these Israelites, they've been plundering all of the Canaanites. And you can imagine, they've seen little trinkets and things here of other gods, other things to worship. They've even inculcated some of this from Egypt, right? It wasn't long that they had been redeemed from Egypt when in Exodus, they're already making a golden calf. Put away the gods, not simply publicly whenever you go to church, but put away the gods that you're serving in your homes and in your hearts, he seems to be saying as well. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, this is interesting because you and I have to ask ourselves, what, is, what are these other gods? Well, the question is, what are you serving? What are you serving in your life? Who do you serve? What are you devoting your time, your energy, your thoughts, your hopes, and your fears towards? That's your God. Whatever you place, all your hopes, your fears, your, your trust, your confidence, what makes your, what makes your joy and your contentment go up and down? That might be your God. What are you trusting in? Put away the other gods that your fathers list, that your fathers served. We need to listen to Joshua again. Do we really want to serve those things? Do you really believe that those things are best for you or for your children or for your wife or for your husband? Have you put those things away? And everything reaches a climax here in verse 15. Joshua says this, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, what he's saying is, is this, and if after everything the Lord has done for you, if you really think it's so hard and wearisome and burdensome and difficult and too hard to serve the Lord, then choose this very day. Don't leave this spot without choosing who you will serve. Notice, by the way, what Joshua does not allow. He doesn't make you think that you can not serve someone. You will serve somebody and I will serve somebody. That's what he's saying. Choose this very day whom you will serve. If it is hard to serve the great God of glory and holiness and grace, choose whom you will serve. Who do you prefer to serve? Do you want to go away as well? Whether the God's your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. What he does right there, right, is saying, look, the gods where your fathers used to dwell, they could never give Abraham and, his, and, his, and Sarai offspring. And they left that place. And the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, look, your Lord defeated all their gods. Do you want to serve either of those gods? He's showing the futility, the ridiculous, the, the, almost the lunacy 
of, of serving anybody else. And you and I today have to listen to Joshua this day as we think about what worship is. It is asking this question, whom will you serve? Choose this day whom you will serve. What does your schedule say about who you serve? What does your bank account say about whom you serve? What does your internet browsing history say about whom you serve? What does your phone say about whom you serve? What does your social media account say about whom you serve? Who do your children think that you serve? Who do your children think that they should serve? Because they do serve somebody and you serve somebody. I serve somebody. Choose this day whom you will serve. Because we will serve someone. We have to realize this, don't we? We either serve the Lord and him alone or no one else. And when push comes to shove, when our schedule, with our bank accounts, with our values, with our principles, whom will we serve? The Lord or something else? And that's what Joshua is pressing them. He's calling them to complete, uncompromising, uh, undivided love and devotion to the Lord their God who had loved them so much. Jesus said this to the 12. You remember when Jesus started saying some things that were a little hard in John chapter six, um, some people began to leave Jesus and Jesus turned to the 12 and said, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I hope that you will join with Joshua and serve the Lord and him alone in undivided, complete devotion to the Lord and not worship the gods that your fathers once served. Where else can we go? He alone has the words of eternal life. So we serve him because of his grace and because he has been so undivided in his kindness to us, we respond in undivided love to him. And thirdly, we will serve the Lord also as individuals and as a household. Joshua says this, you guys can make your decisions this day, but I'm gonna tell you my decision. But as for me and as for my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice what Joshua says, and Matthew Henry points this out. He doesn't say, not, not my house, but not me. And he also doesn't say, not, uh, uh, he doesn't say my house won't serve uh, the Lord, but I will. And he also doesn't say, my house will serve the Lord, but I don't have to. But as for me, along with my house, we will serve the Lord. First of all, we will serve the Lord as individuals. And this is where it comes particularly, I think, to individual worship. After we've recognized who God is in his grace, and after we've come to that decision to choose this day whom we will serve as individuals, we need to say, I will serve the Lord. I will serve the Lord. But as for me, I will serve the Lord. What did this look like for Joshua in his life? Well, first of all, obviously, it meant I will serve the Lord in all of my callings, in all of life. 
Joshua was going to serve the Lord because he was the leader of a nation, but he was also a father, a husband, a grandfather. Um, In all of his callings in life and all the roles and the responsibilities that he had, I'm going to serve the Lord. And that's first and foremost, obviously. But second of all, whenever we think about what really things that we should do that should characterize our lives, second of all, I will meditate on the word of God. Meditating on the Bible. It's very interesting. Joshua is told in Joshua chapter one, verse eight, God tells him this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, meditation is not some kind of, uh, I think sometimes we think about some really weird Eastern religion thing when we think about the word meditation, but the word meditation simply means this, to regularly ruminate and continually just think about, to turn things over. You think about it, in a sense, it's like watching a cow chew the cud. You just keep turning it over and over in your mouth, right? You see that animal, and that's what we're supposed to be doing, to turn the word of God over and over and over and over again in our minds, to let it sink in to our souls, to meditate, to regularly, habitually, continually, regularly be thinking about the word of God. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but rather what? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditates. Psalm 119, verse 97, it is, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The word of God should be our meditation all the day long. If uh, we were able to break into your mind, your goal as a believer, I'm not saying the only thing you're ever thinking about is Bible scripture verses, but I am saying this, your life should be characterized by regularly thinking upon the things of the Lord. And that should be your goal and my goal, to meditate upon the word of the Lord. But how can you meditate on the word without knowing what it is? And that's where, second of all, it involves reading the Bible as well, doesn't it? Reading the scriptures, turning them over in your mind. But also notice you can't simply read the Bible, you have to ponder it, you have to think about it. And as we meditate upon God's word day and night, the Holy Spirit is renewing our minds. This is our worship to him as he changes us. Meditating daily. It's interesting often, isn't it? It says day and night or all the day. Not simply Sundays or the first day of the week or in the Old Testament, the seventh day of the week. It's day and night. So we say, I will meditate upon the word, but also I will obey the word. Joshua is told by God in verse, chapter one, verse eight again, you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. We read the Bible in order to obey it, in order to believe the promises, obey his commands. We also pray. We can assume that Joshua prayed often As an individual in prayer, we are lifting up our hearts and our whole selves to God. We are presenting ourselves to the king as a living sacrifice. 
We praise him for who he is, what he has done, and we confess our sins and ask for his blessing on all that we do. Do you daily devote time to prayer to the Lord like Joshua did, like Jesus did? Do you meditate upon the Lord's words day and night? Is that your goal? I'm not saying that any of us are perfect in this, we're not. But that should be our goal, shouldn't it? If we want to be the children of the living God. We should want to be like Daniel, who it's said got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. So I will meditate upon the Lord's word. I will obey his word and I will pray. And I will serve the Lord in all my responsibilities in life. That is individual worship. But also he doesn't simply say individually I will do those things. He says, but as for me, along with my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, right away when we talk about family matters, um, each family situation is unique and we wanna give that caveat right away. Some have children, some do not. Um, in some cases, only one person is a believer um, while the other is not. We read about situations like this in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. And we are grateful for families where both parents are Christians well, we realize that's also not always the case. And so each of us, as we talk about this, especially we'll have to apply these principles to our own situations. There's not a one size fits all, but at the same time, there are broad principles that I think all of us can apply uh, here. It's fascinating. He says, not simply I will serve the Lord, but my house will serve the Lord. What did Joshua mean by this? Well, first of all, I think, it has this idea that my house, my family, but for Joshua, it would have been my wife and my children. We will be, they will be commanded to keep the way of the Lord. Did you read this before in Genesis chapter 18 that God says about Abraham, our father in the faith, he says, for I have chosen him, speaking about Abraham, why? that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him, to keep the way of the Lord. Do you and I, if we're parents, do you and I expect our children to keep the way of the Lord? Or do we say, you know what, they'll, they'll keep the way of the Lord when they're older. They'll keep the way of the Lord later on in life. Do you tell your children about who they are, who they belong to, and what their purpose in life is from the scriptures? Do you remind your wife of the gospel truths about who Jesus is and what he's done for us? Do you remind each other about the promises of the gospel, about the forgiveness and the cleansing that is available in Jesus Christ? And notice, you can't command your children to keep your way, but to keep the Lord's way. Uh, sometimes we, we really strain our children whenever we command them to keep our rules, which are not necessarily the same thing as the Lord's rules. Jesus came not simply to save adults, but to save children, and to save grandchildren to command our children and our whole family to keep the way of the Lord. But also we need to say, my family will hear the word of God. Reading the scriptures, some of us grew up like Timothy, 
from childhood, we have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3.15. The reality is, is God has called you, commanded you, given you, if you're a parent, the responsibility to teach your children the Bible. And you cannot simply pass that responsibility off to the church. Um, It's a wonderful privilege, actually, a wonderful thing that he invites you and calls you to tell your children, to tell your wife, to tell your husband, if you're a wife here, about the gospel. God gave you a Bible so that you could give that to your family. Psalm 78, verses four through eight says this, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. By that, he's meaning he established the word of God and appointed a law in Israel, the scriptures, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet are born and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. We are to give our children the Bible and that's how we lead our family to serve God the Lord. Do you devote every time, every day, some time for your family together around the word of God to hear from his word? Do you set aside a certain time for your family to hear from the mouth of God? Notice again, choose this day whom you will serve. We're not laying down a bunch of rules and applications for you and your family, but we are saying this, that by what we do in our family, it does highlight whom we serve. And lastly as well, my house will pray to the Lord. Do you teach your children to pray? You know, um, one easy way to do this, and I, we've done this with our children, is to help them to memorize the Lord's Prayer. As a, and we do this as a family. Let that sink into your children's mind. You know, and... <clears throat> You know, one of the things I, I want to give a caveat to, or a, thing, a shout out, I guess, for Pastor Scott, what he did with the, uh, the book he mentioned about for family devotions. We do the Old Testament one for our family, and it's really good. But one of the things you'll notice as a parent is sometimes you're thinking, I'm doing this for the kids. As if you don't need this as well. One of the things, I don't know if you've learned this in your life, but I need my children to remind me that this stuff is real. Because whenever I tell them Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, there are no questions in their minds that this is true. My sinful, adult, unbelieving mind wants to doubt that often. Now, maybe some of you have never doubted that, and that's good. But I need my children to remind me of what childlike faith looks like. So just as much as I may think I'm doing this for them, I realize the Lord is using them to do this for me. You see, the reality is, is you need your children just as much as your children need you. And in family worship, it's, it may feel like you're going through the motions, which by the way, is not a bad thing if the motions are the right motions. But as you're going through those things, you're trusting that the Lord is working because where the word of God is, 
Jesus is. Jesus is present in your home. Jesus is teaching your children. Jesus is praying alongside of you and with your children. Jesus is saving and welcoming your children in your home. Have you welcomed Jesus into your, sometimes we talk often about welcoming Jesus into our hearts, but have we welcomed him into our homes? Have we welcomed him into our families? Have we welcomed him to our dinner tables? Or do we hide these things as Psalm 78 says from our children? Our family will serve the Lord. We have promises to encourage us, which are many in scripture. The promises are for us and for our children. And Spurgeon says this, how good it is of the Lord to think of our children, that he should save us, oh, we must always bless him for that, but that he should have a word for our wife, a word for our son, and a word for our daughter. This is overflowing mercy. Isn't it interesting in the book of Acts, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Lastly, we will serve the Lord despite whatever difficulties come our way. Joshua tells them in verses 19 through 21, we're not gonna read it, but you can see there that Joshua is telling them, it's not going to be easy to serve the Lord and it's not going to be easy for you and me to serve the Lord individually or with our families. But the reality is, is that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and you will have a hard and difficult time in this world. If you are going to serve the Lord, it will be difficult. Be aware of that. Schedules will try to interrupt you. The things of this world are gonna try to tell you that the one thing that you don't have to do is read the Bible. The one thing you can give up is reading the Bible or the one thing you can give up is going to church. If anything gives out, it's those things. Choose this day whom you will serve. Now, of course, we know the story of Israel. They and their families did serve the Lord for a while, but it wasn't long before their families began to serve other gods. Israel was punished, cast out of the land. But then another important event happened at the city of Shechem. It's not called the city of Shechem, but it's the same area. A man was traveling to Galilee, but he had to pass through Samaria near Shechem. And Jacob's well was there and it was high noon. And a woman came from Samaria to draw water. And this man, Jesus, said to her, give me a drink. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? He answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Today we've emphasized that we serve the Lord and, and we want to serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord individually and as families and we will serve him alone. But the reality is this, after all of our failures to serve the Lord, because you're gonna fail and I'm gonna fail, in all of, but we keep going and we keep trying to serve him because we love him and because of what he's done for us. And yet through it all, and despite all of it, the Lord is actually the one serving us in the sense that he is the one giving us living water. Every time you open up the Bible, the streams that we sang about earlier are flowing into your household of eternal life. And your children, 
your wife, your grandchildren, and you yourself are invited freely to take of that water and to have eternal life. And then later on, it's fascinating, isn't it, that later on in that same story with the woman at the well, the woman brings up the issue of worship and Jesus says this, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. As you and your households serve the Lord, know that the Lord is with you. And the Lord is seeking you and seeking your children and seeking your grandchildren that you will worship him in spirit and in truth. And every time you meditate upon the scriptures, every time you pray to the Lord, every time your family sings praises to the Lord, know this, ultimately, he's the one there bringing you the living water. He's the one there getting down and washing your feet. He's the one there forgiving your sins and the sins of your children. He's the one there offering everything for free, as free as the air you breathe and as free as anything in this world can be free. So free is the grace of God to you and to your children. And because of that great grace, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful passage from the book of Joshua. We thank you for the challenge that it is, for the call that it is to serve you in undivided, loving devotion to you. But even as we've thought about all that we are called upon to do, we pray ultimately that our eyes would be focused not upon the works of our hands, but upon the works that you have done. Please bless us, bless our families, bless our marriages, and may your great grace rest upon each and every one, and that we and our households would be saved and serve the Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen.